Good morning. You know, I've really enjoyed uh, in the last couple of weeks a phone call about two weeks ago, uh, a breakfast conversation on Friday morning to get to know Pastor Sean. Uh, Consider myself a kindred spirit. I, I love to sit down there and listen to his passion as he shares with you about what he sees for not just Nashua, but for the nations, for the world. You know, one of the things in that kindred spirit that I see is a man who is single-mindedly focused on the gospel of Christ. And that's a wonderful focus. That's the focus that we all need to have. And let me just encourage you, as, as, as Sean's a new pastor, pray for him. Pray for him as he leads you down this path towards greater clarity, towards greater focus on the gospel of Christ and taking God's glory to the nations. Just encourage you to pray for him in that. As a matter of fact, before I begin, I'd like to pray. If you, if you would, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come before you this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would um, open up our hearts, open up our minds. May your word speak powerfully this morning to each of our hearts. Help us, Lord Jesus, to refocus here at the beginning of this new year. Help us to have a new focus on Jesus, as, as the author of Hebrews says, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, so many distractions, so many things that take us in many different directions, and I pray this morning, through the power of your word, that you would help us to focus once again on you on what you have done for us, and on what you are doing in the world. And may we praise you as a result and commit our lives to you once again. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, over the last six months, we have been in transition. As Pastor Sean was talking about, we've been transitioning from uh, church planning organizations, Send International, for some two and a half decades, uh, working with them, having lived overseas in the country of Ukraine and then in Central Asia and the country of, of Kazakhstan. And in the last 10 years, working in uh, our, the international office of our organization, we've been in transition to a new organization called LRI, Leadership Resources International. One of the things that I've seen both in the send, my send days as I've traveled around the world in, in the last 10 years, traveling to places like the Philippines and Thailand and, and Hong Kong and Ukraine and, and places in the former Soviet Union and Europe, is to see that God is continuing to do powerful things. God is on the move. God is, 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 his spirit is being poured out on the nations. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14. And that's not our passage for this morning, but it says that knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as waters cover the sea. That's a prophecy. That's a promise. Knowledge of God's glory, knowledge of the person of God, knowledge of his greatness We'll cover the earth in the same way as if we go over to the beach like I did with my sister and brother-in-law and look out into the ocean and just see ocean as far as the eye can see. Knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as water covers the seas. And that is happening today. And you know how it's happening? It's happening when the church of Jesus Christ in all places, 
like here in, in North America, decides to take God's glory and take it to another place, to one of those hard places as Pastor Sean, Sean was talking about. But not just from here. Also, when God's glory is being taken to the nations from those nations that have now received the gospel, places where the gospel has begun, even, even in small ways, to take root. Just this past summer, my wife, Esther, who's here with me, and my daughter, Joy, who's here as well, we had the chance to travel to Russia, and we lived there for about a month this summer. We were in the city of Ufa, which is a, which is a, a, a primarily Muslim city in the former Soviet, Soviet Union in, in Russia, a Muslim-majority population. And we were working alongside of a church there while we were there. And we saw this Russian ethnic church. It was mostly Russians ethnically in this particular church. They had a passion to reach their Muslim neighbors, the Bashkir and the Tartar. And while we were there, they had a prayer vigil. And the pastor was talking about prayer. And in this prayer vigil or this prayer marathon is what they called it. They would have people from different churches within the region that would take a day of prayer for 10 days. And they would say, we're going to pray that the gospel will reach to, the Muslim, to our Muslim neighbors among the Bashkir and the Tartar. They want to see the gospel planted, churches planted among their neighbors. And they prayed. And the Russian church is moving and is taking God's glory to those nations that are nearby. But you know what else? The Russian church, yes, the Russian church that we hear about on the news is also taking God's message to other places, some of which I can't even name. But they're taking God's message, planting the church, and God's glory is being revealed in those places. Just this past month, uh, at the beginning of December, I had the chance to go back to Central Asia, to the place where we used to live. And I was excited because I wasn't going back to Kazakhstan. I was going back to a neighboring country. And who was I meeting in this neighboring country? I was meeting brothers and sisters that we worked with when we were living in Kazakhstan that wanted to take God's message and training, biblical training, to pastors and leaders in this other country, in Kyrgyzstan, an even less reached country. God is moving in powerful ways today. Praise the Lord. These brothers and sisters that I've seen, and I could share story after story after story, they've been transformed by a profound truth. They've been transformed by a simple message, and that's the message of the gospel. If you have your Bibles or using an app, uh, please open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to just read for you verse 27. 127. To them, to you, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, Colossians 1.27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, among the nations, among all peoples, the glorious riches of this ministry, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a simple and profound truth. God, the eternal creator, the holy one, the majestic one, the eternal one, is not distant, is not far, 
Christ, God, is in you. Christ in you. And what does he give to us? A very simple truth as well. He is the hope of glory. His existence, his being, his presence in us gives us hope. And what kind of hope are we even talking about when we read a a simple verse like this? Are we talking about the kind of hope that says, I hope it doesn't snow when we leave church this morning when we're heading home? Or I hope my team wins. Sorry to bring that up today. I hope that my relationship with, with my, this friend when I go back to school, it, it goes well, or, or I hope for any number of things. It's not that kind of hope. It's not a wish. This is 100% assurance. I hope I will be with Jesus forever means I will be with Jesus forever. It is my assured, it's, it's a guarantee, it's a fact. Now, Paul is writing all of this. Paul's writing this simple declaration, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's writing it to the Colossians church. And I know you've been studying Colossians with Pastor Sean recently, but I want to ask a question. Why do you think Paul is writing this simple declaration, this simple truth about Christ in you, the hope of glory? The reason is that the church in Colossae was getting distracted. If you were to read on, and I know you'll have a chance to be studying further, further into the book of Colossians in the weeks and months ahead, you'll learn that the Colossian church was struggling. The Colossians church was struggling with distractions. Paul says in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, he says, uh, verse 3, I always thank God, my Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and the love that spring up from hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Paul says, I see that you are people of faith. I see that you have, are people that love others, as you can see also when we read further in the passage. But if you go to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, you begin to see that there's, there's distractions. It's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a, maybe a big word, but it, it's a basic belief that all the physical world, everything that we can see, everything that we can touch is evil or wrong or bad. And the only spirit or spiritual things, those non-visible things, as it were, are good And this kind of belief was starting to creep its way into a church that had a good foundation of theology, of belief, of faith. And as this was beginning to creep in, legalism began to creep in. People began to take their theology and add more to it. Don't touch, don't taste, do this, don't do that. And the church in Colossae was beginning to get embedded more deeply with these distractions. Distractions, this direction and this direction and this direction. And you know what distractions bring into our lives and into the church in Colossae? They make us forget the purposes that God has for us. And they made the church there forget what God's purposes were for them and God's calling in their lives. When we begin to get distracted it begins to cause division within the church even. And when there's division, we're not able to carry out the purposes that God has for us. They were under threat in the church of Colossae. The church was becoming distracted, doubting truth. Divisions were being made. So Paul wrote this book 
to refocus the attention of the Colossian people, the people in Colossae. We get distracted, don't we? We have lots of distractions in our lives. Sometimes we don't realize how distracted as a people we are. About a month and a half ago, in the middle of November, I had the chance to travel to Africa. And I was in East Africa working with our African team of of Africans from all over the entire eastern half of Africa, from, from Ethiopia all the way down to South Africa. And they're trying to take God's glory, God's message, God's word, and train pastors all throughout that entire region. And I was in Tanzania, but there was a Kenyan man there who's been living in the United States, actually in North America, in Vancouver, for the last, for the last um, year, just temporarily. And I asked him the one day, I said, what, what would you say is the one thing that you've noticed about North American culture that kind of sticks out to you, that surprises you? You know what he responded and said? He said, distractions, busyness, people going a thousand different directions. My daughter, Rebecca, my oldest daughter, not the one that's with me today, when we came back from Central Asia 10 years ago, and she entered into youth group and entered into her Christian school, which when we we returned, she really struggled because of these same kinds of distractions. She said, every time I get into a conversation with someone in youth group or in in my Christian school, it's about movies, it's about boys, it's about clothes. (laughs) Those aren't necessarily bad things. I, I understand that. But he said, she said, when I was in Kazakhstan, when we would go to youth group, we would actually ask each other, so what's God doing in your life? How can I pray for you? You know, accountability and, and encouragement from the word of God. And yeah, they would talk about boys and they would talk about clothing. No, don't get me wrong, but they would also talk about those things. And she said, I never get into those conversations while I'm here. As I've been here for the last 10 years, and it's not just here, it's anywhere around the world, really. I've realized how many distractions are in my own life. You know, the, the TV, the movies, the sports, the politics. Here I am in New Hampshire talking politics, right? Talk about distractions, right? The priorities of our children, wanting to make sure they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here, doing this, 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 and this. Not that any of those things in and of themselves are bad, but they begin as a whole to take us, to take our minds, to take our focus, to take our attention off of the things that God has for us. We begin to not recognize that there's somebody over here that's hurting when we're distracted over here. There's someone right here that just could use a word of encouragement or could use some prayer or we begin to not recognize the lost. Here we are in New England, one of the most unreached regions of the country. And the distractions help us to forget that that's true. That that's a reality. And I shared stories about what God's doing in the world in the good sense, but there's still billions with a B of people around the world who do not know Christ. Who is going to tell them? Who's going to share the hope of Jesus? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who's going to share that truth with them? The distractions, they are plenty. So Paul 
decides in the book of Colossians to refocus the attention of the Colossian church. Just like the author of Hebrews, he encourages them to fix their eyes on Jesus. Paul here in the book of Colossians, he encourages them also to fix their eyes on Jesus. Turn in your Bible, um, just a couple of verses here to chapter 1, verse 15, and I'm going to read verses 15 to the beginning of verse 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and reconcile, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Paul's refocusing the attention straight away to Jesus. Jesus. We had our attention refocused this morning through communion on Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Who does Paul say Jesus is? Well, Jesus in 115, Jesus is God himself, God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. In 219, it says that Christ, uh, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You know, that Gnosticism problem that I talked about before had a real problem with Jesus. He was a physical man. How could he be God if physical was evil? Well, this lays that whole argument and whole debate to bed, puts, puts it away completely. If there's any question about who Jesus was, it's, it's, it's done here. The physical son of God is God. The firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Firstborn. That sounds like something like Jesus was in a created order of some sort. Well, don't be confused by that one. Firstborn is a title that can be bestowed or given to someone. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 89, the idea of firstborn is a title that was given even to King David. And he was the lastborn, the youngest, not the firstborn. It indicates preeminence. It indicates firstness. Jesus is preeminent, first, not just should be first, but is first. Verse 16, he created all things. He holds all things together. No exceptions in that. He establishes all authority. He is above any and all leaders, presidential candidates, He's the one who puts presidents in office and takes them out. Governors, mayors, senators, bosses. Jesus is the one who gives them their authority. In everything, Jesus, as verse 18 says, is supreme so that he might have the supremacy. He is first. And when the distractions come to our lives, and they come, when we're making decisions about what's really important to us, we need to remember that Jesus is number one. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme. 
We need to fix our eyes on him. And you know what happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus? When we look at who Jesus is and we realize who he really is in our lives, knowing Jesus changes everything. When we served in the country of, of Kazakhstan, we met a, uh, a pastor, a Kazakh, a Muslim background believer. So he came from a Muslim family. And for a Muslim to give their lives to Jesus is a very, very difficult thing for them to do. Because to come to Jesus means you have to put aside family, you have to put aside history, you have to put aside uh, community. You might be ostracized and, and, and made to stand all by yourself. You might be persecuted. And Nurlan was a pastor. He was a believer. But of course, he has a story. I'd love to tell his whole story. He has a great story. His wife, Aijan, and Nurlan together, how they both came to Christ. But I just want to focus on one piece, on how Nurlan gave his life to Jesus. Nurlan was sick. His wife had already come to Christ And he had to go into the hospital. He had to get a simple procedure. The doctor said, this is a simple procedure. We're going to take care of it. You'll be, you'll have your surgery. You'll be better. You'll go home in a day or so. Everything will be fine. Aijan, Nurlan's wife said, Nurlan, you you still should pray to Jesus that he will protect you, that he will heal you, that he will guide the doctors. And Nurlan was adamant to say, I don't need your Jesus. Norlan had the surgery. After the surgery, he woke up. His wife was in the room. He looked at her and he said, See, I didn't need your Jesus. And right at that moment, he fell back into his bed, unconscious. He was out for a whole week. The doctors didn't understand what had happened and why he was struggling and why he was visually and all of the, all of the indicators were that Nerlan was dying. And at the end of that one-week period, Nerlan had a vision. And brothers and sisters, this is happening in the Muslim world in many places where the gospel is just beginning to penetrate. Visions and dreams happen and they point people to Jesus and point people to those who can share with them Jesus. And Nerlan had a vision. And in this vision... Jesus came to him. And around, around Jesus were a, a lot of people dressed in white robes. And Jesus asked Nirlan a simple question. He said, who am I? Nirlan responded in the dream, I don't know you. He had heard about Jesus from his wife, but he said, I don't know you. And then the vision stopped. And then it happened again a short while later. Who am I? I don't know you. And then a third time. Who am I? And Nerlan says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And at that moment, Nerlan woke up from his bed, from his, from his uh, unconsciousness, got up out of his bed, got dressed, started to walk around the hospital, totally transformed, totally changed. The people thought they were seeing a ghost because Nerlan was supposed to be dead. Instead, Nerlan became a great evangelist in Kazakhstan and a mentor. Kazakh believer became a mentor for me and his wife, for my wife as well. Knowing Jesus changes everything. 
Seeing Jesus transforms us. But you know, it's not just knowing who Jesus is, as this passage we're going to read here says, but it's also understanding what he did for us. I'm going to read in verses 19 and following. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Once you, Colossians, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme. But Jesus is also our savior. A perfect person exchanged his life so that we might have perfection. And in this passage, we're reminded that he has removed our burdens. He's cleansed us. He's made us holy. We can boldly approach the throne of God because of Jesus. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. In the Muslim world, there are movements that are happening all over. Yes, there are still 1.6 billion, 1.7 billion Muslims in the world, most of which who do not know Jesus and do not have access to Jesus. But in the last 35 years, there have been more movements to Christ in the Muslim world than in any other time in history, from the time of Muhammad to the present era. My wife Esther and I and and our daughter Joy, we've been involved in... um, Uh, teaching English as a second language to Muslim immigrants, immigrants from the Middle East, from Syria, from Iraq, from, from Afghanistan, from Yemen. In Detroit, which is actually, by the way, one of the largest Muslim, uh, it's the largest Muslim population in any, in any location within the United States. And so we've been working with uh, these different Muslim peoples, working with refugees who've come in, teaching them English trying to share the gospel with them through special events and through opportunities that God gives to us. Last year, uh, my wife and I did a little bit of a survey with some of our students, and we asked them, what is the number one thing that you long for in the world? And they said very quickly, almost all of them to a person said, peace. We just want peace. And we would ask them questions, how do you get peace? Do you get it through Islam, through the Quran? And they would look at us strangely. Uh, no. Who here knows peace? We do. And here's the Muslim world, at least all of our neighbors, saying, we want peace. The world longs to have their burdens taken away. They may not recognize it. They may not realize it. Do you know that the fastest growing church in the world today is, hap- is in the nation that has been in the news this week more than any other nation, Iran. People are coming to Christ in large numbers. My wife read an article just this morning where a general acknowledged the simple fact that large conversions are taking place within his nation. 
Praise the Lord for what God's doing. There are doors that are opening up, but there are still so much more that needs to be done. Paul refocuses the attention of the Colossians church. He fixes their eyes on Jesus, on who he is, and on what he did. And at that point, then, Paul goes on to talk about what his priorities and our priorities are to be all about. I'm going to read, um, sorry, starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. In that very simple few sentences, few words, Paul describes purpose. Paul describes our, our intent, the direction that we should take in our lives. He says, we should strive to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, does that strike you strangely? Does that hit you in a, in a weird sort of way? It does me. We've just looked at the fact that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme, right? Jesus is, the, the salvation that Jesus brings is sufficient, 100%, no question. And yet here it says to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What is Paul talking about? Well, you take it right from the text of what he's talking about. He says that he has a commission that God gave to him to present the word of God in its fullness. Filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ can be summarized simply by saying to fulfill the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has called each of us to take his word to those who do not know, to disciple those who do know so that they will take it to those who do not know. Our salvation is secure. But to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ means that we have a job and a calling that God has called us to do. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. There's a fun name for us to remember, right? Zinzendorf. The man who lived in the 1700s. He was part of the Moravian church and he himself founded a small community at the beginning about 300 members. And this community of the Moravian church and the Moravians in general ultimately became known as some of the most passionate and zealous people for Christ in modern history. And the story goes where this came from is that Zinzendorf had traveled. He was a young man, graduated from university. He was a believer and he was traveling around Europe to see different, different um, uh, 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 different sites throughout Europe, went to a museum in Dusseldorf, Germany. He walked into this one museum and he saw a picture that was called Behold the Man. That was the title of the picture. And the picture itself was this huge painting of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head and blood streaming down his face. And you could see the, the shreds on his back from where he had been beaten. And Zinzendorf was mesmerized by this picture. The bottom of the picture, there was a little subtitle or, or, or a question, really, that was written there. 
And it said, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? I've done this for you. What have you done for me? All of Zinzendorf's life, he looked back on that particular moment, that particular encounter, and realized that that was was the the life-changing moment in his life. As he was leaving that museum that day, he was asking himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I've really never done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. In 1927, his little congregation of 300 started a prayer vigil. Do you know what this prayer vigil was? They prayed in this church 24 hours a day, making sure that there was always somebody that was praying for the unreached corners of the globe, the hard places to go. They prayed not for a week, not for a month, not for a year. They prayed for 100 years. This is how long this prayer vigil lasted. 65 years after this prayer vigil had started, that one church that started as 300 had sent out themselves 300 missionaries. The Moravian movement itself sent out some nearly 3,000 missionaries throughout all of the different churches of the Moravian movement. It's estimated that one in 60 Moravians was a missionary. And to give you a comparison, the Protestant church In the whole world at that time, it was one in 5,000 were going out. And here's the Moravians sending out one in 60. There's a story of a young, uh, two young men, part of the Moravian church, this denomination. These two young men, they had a real passion for sharing the gospel of Christ themselves. And they had heard about this one island in the Caribbean. And they said, we want to go and take the gospel to the slaves that are being taken there. Some three, 4,000 slaves were being taken to that particular island, had been taken there. The owner said, I don't want, they tried to find out a way if they could get in there to be able to share the gospel, to go there. And, and they said, they, they, uh, the owner of the of these slaves and the island and the plantation said, even if a pastor were to crash land on our shores, I would put him up in a house separate from everyone because I don't want anything to do with the gospel of Jesus. So they had no access to these slaves to share the gospel. And you know what these two young Moravian men said that they would do? Sell themselves as slaves. And they got on a ship... And as their family was looking at this ship, as it was setting sail to go to this island of slaves where they would share the gospel of Christ, they were giving their lives to Jesus. Their parents, their families were on the shore and they were crying, watching them leave, probably to never see them again. And those two young men in their 20s stood at the, at the bow of the ship, holding hands, and they said this simple cry, to win for the lamb the reward of his suffering. This is worth it. To win for the lamb the reward of his suffering. That phrase ultimately became the heart cry or the, the motto of the entire Moravian movement. The death of Christ... Is fully sufficient for us, yes, to reconcile us to God. 
Yet, what is lacking is the fulfillment of of the gospel, the fulfillment of the gospel to every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And God has called each of us to participate in that movement, to participate in taking his glory to the nations. Psalm 67 says that each of us was blessed, not just to receive a blessing, but specifically to be a blessing. The things that God has given to us is for the very purpose of giving them back to God. And God has given us much. We maybe get distracted by what he's given to us. We need to refocus our attention on Christ, on who he is, what he did for us. And to strive with every bit of energy that we have. Paul says in this very passage, he says, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And he says, to this end, I labor, I struggle with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. That's what God has called us to. To win for the lamb, the reward of his suffering. Are we willing to do that which we're called to do? Let's pray together. Let's stand. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for what you're doing around the world. Lord, I remember the prayer of one of my brothers, a Latin American brother who who prayed over a city in the Spanish language. And he prayed prayed for that city that workers would be sent from all nations. I remember as he cried, as a, as, a, as a Guatemalan brother cried, pleading with you to send forth workers. Lord, maybe, maybe there's people in this room that are an answer to his prayer. And Father, I pray that today, that if there are those who are considering giving up their lives, willing to do like those young men did and and. and to to win for the lamb, the reward of his suffering. Lord, I pray that you will give them the energy, the boldness, the courage to take those steps to follow you. Lord, help us all to be passionate about your glory, to be passionate about what Christ has done for us and to be willing to give our lives for him, to win for the lamb, the reward of his suffering. In Jesus' name.